I know we talk about two Americas right now, and I feel like this situation has, has highlighted two UTs at the very least. another edition of Sounding Off, a series brought to you by The Sound of Victory. I'm Perry Johnson. And I'm Courtney Cox. Last episode, we dissected the history of The Eyes of Texas, the school song of the University of Texas at Austin. We also unpacked the recent controversy surrounding the university, its athletes, and its band with six Black UT alumni. Seven, if you count me. We continue the conversation in this episode. Here with the trap version of the eyes of Texas. Let me do it. I ate a million for lunch, a half a million for breakfast. Everything big in Texas, that's why I brought this a necklace. Young, flashy, and rich. The Texas girls call me sexy. I'm so handsome and healthy. They Gucci brunch are invested. He shall line up my brethren. Why do I care so much? I mean, you're the resident music scholar. Help me out. Why is this song pulling at people so much in both directions? Why does this story seem to have so many legs and layers? I think your questions are right on point. And I apologize. I don't think I have answers today, but I have additional questions and perhaps some historical context to think through these questions. Why does it matter so much? And maybe we should back up to ask, does it matter? Perhaps that's the starting point and why we see such controversial stances being taken so emphatically around the song, The Eyes of Texas. I think there's a few different ways that we can enter into this conversation today. One is to think about it through tradition and through symbolism. Another through nostalgia or the mythology around nostalgias. Another through thinking about standardization, both in terms of form, musical form, and of practice. And lastly, to think about reconciliation, to think about what reconciliation might look like, what it should look like, how we should move forward beyond conversations and beyond questions to think about what does action look like on the ground to address these issues. There's multiple layers that we can look at with respect to symbolism. There's the musical layer, the lyrical layer, and the historical layer. Part of the controversy is around the notion that there are veiled origins. Does it matter where the song came from? What if we've been, or you've been, for example, a longtime Texas fan, a Texas alumni, a Texas legacy student with generations of family members who've gone through this institution, but you never knew the origins of this song? Does it then matter that there is this minstrel, this racial history integral to this song if you've always associated it only with the institution and only with pride as a Texas Longhorn? The answer, of course, is not simple. When we think about the musical layers, as we've discussed already, we can think about the musical composition itself of reimagining, of recomposing I've Been Working on the Railroad, a song that is directly rooted in a minstrel and racist past. We can think about the lyrical layers, the fact that this song takes up and reimagines words directly from Robert E. Lee, as Courtney mentioned, yes, that Robert E. Lee, that were the eyes of the South. And of course, the racist history that we cannot dissociate from the Confederacy, right? Or from the Civil War. When we think about joining the musical and lyrical layers together, we get what we could consider a sort of sonic disruption. Because for some, it's always and only represented 
UT. For others, it's been a song that UT has reimagined for its purposes, but a song that is always rooted in this racist history. I'm of the mind that you cannot dissociate the two. Music is always history. Music is an entry point for us to consider larger histories, key among them racial histories, and the disenfranchisement of African-Americans in the context of the United States. I feel like I learned about it uh, my freshman year. Um, and I started talking to people about it and I realized very quickly that very few people knew about the history of the song. And so um, my relationship to that was kind of complicated because on the one hand, just like Andrew and a lot of other people, I just refused to sing the song or really take part in that part of the process. If we were at a football game, I would try to leave before that or I would just sit there and just act like it wasn't happening. But you know, it wasn't like a thing to where I was offended that people were singing the song because I quickly realized that people didn't know what the song meant or, or the history of the song. So it was just one of those things where you know and you know what two other people know, but most people just don't know. And that's slightly by design, obviously. It's not like the university is putting that out there. For example, so I, I said I learned the song in orientation. I later became an orientation advisor. And it's like, we knew as orientation advisors the history of the song because we had talked about it as orientation advisors. But at least for the first, so I was an orientation advisor for two years. For the first year, we had a long debate about it. And I guess there was a vote and they decided to keep teaching the song or the university wanted us to keep teaching the song. But the second year, we pushed back and said, we didn't want to teach the song. And the university just kind of let us do that. But the big thing was, you know, we were saying we we're willing to teach the song if you let us also talk about the history and the university was opposed to that. They didn't want to go into that process. And I wasn't like in the room for these discussions, but this is how it was relayed to us as the employees. You know, the university was like, we'd rather you just not bring it up as opposed to bring it up and talk about this history. So also, like, uh, I think the context matters. And at that time, there was a lot of racial stuff going on on campus. We had just gotten the Martin Luther King statue statue and people were egging it. We were having, you know, affirmative action bake sales on our campus at that time. Um, and I just think that they were really touchy about, the, uh, there was also at least talk about getting rid of some of the, uh, like the conservative statues or the Confederate statues and also talks about renaming certain buildings, even at that point. So I know this is something that's been in the news recently because of what's been happening on campus recently. But that was, those conversations were happening on campus even back then when I was on campus. And so I think the university was a bit uh, hesitant to like expose this new problem when they had to deal with all these other problems. Uh, but you know, from that point on of knowing about the song, I want to tell people about the song and make let them make their own decision. And I'm sure it's, there were some people that I told about the song that continues to sing the song to this day. But I definitely know people that when I told them about the song, they looked into it and they were like, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm kind of done with this song. I mean, and one of the many reminders that the school wasn't built for us, whether it's the Confederate statues that you spoke of, the building names. I mean, we have what the Prather buildings. I know that was brought up in the, the list of, I don't want to call them demands, but, you know, the letter that the, the athletes released um, during the summer. But, you know, we there's so many things on campus. I mean, and we're not even talking about the fact that at any time, you know, we never even, Black people never even made up 5% of the student body. So we're already, mm -hmm. I don't want to stay behind enemy lines, but it felt that way. You know, when there are very few people that look like you and people that you can identify with. The HBCUs are going to say, well, why would you go to those schools? Why, why, why go to a school that doesn't love you or give you love or has you, gives you this experience? I'll 
at first my response was that, you know what? I paid, my student loans are paid off. I paid for this education. I need to get the education. But also this is a, a, a public institution. So not only my tuition pays for this institution to run, my Texas taxes do. So that means that as a person that, that uh, a black person that pays taxes to the state of Texas, I still do, don't tell nobody, um, pays taxes to the state of Texas, I still, I still want some type of representation. So it goes beyond me being a student, me being an alumni, you're a public institution with state funding. And so for you to go in and be this disrespectful and this, um, you're, you're discriminating against a group, group of people, now I gotta question your funding that comes from my taxes. So that goes beyond me just being an, an alumni. You as a black person paying Texas taxes know that you have a voice and that if something racist is blatantly racist is going on, then you would stand with us as well. We can also think about the musical histories laden into the eyes of Texas, specifically with the tune I've been working on the railroad, a song that has been categorized as part of the American songbook, as part of American folk songs, which forces us to question, how do we categorize folk songs within the context of the United States? What does folk matter? How is it used as a category to include and exclude particular characteristics? And what does it mean that the eyes of Texas are using a quote unquote folk song that is rooted in a racist and minstrel specific past? One of the scholars that we've returned to throughout our work is Jennifer Lynn Stover, who presents for us the theoretical framework of listening ears, which I think is also relevant to this conversation. By listening ears, Jennifer Lynn Stover asks us to think about how listening functions as a quote, embodied cultural process that echoes and shapes one's orientation to power and one's posture toward the world, end quote. In this way, we have thought before through The Sound of Victory about listening ears and the afterlives of particular musical moments. I think the eyes of Texas is another relevant moment to think about listening ears, meaning does it matter that the ears of 2020, that the audiences who listen to and perform the eyes of Texas hear it differently today than they first did when it was introduced? The answer we would argue I think is yes, but it forces us to then do the larger cultural and historical work to think about what is different in the context of these sociocultural moments that allows for us to hear it differently. When you hear that song now, what do you hear? I hear Dixie. I, I said that earlier. Um, I hear Dixie. That, that's what I associated with. To me, it's, it's, it's a very similar kind of situation, same time period. So for me, I, I react to it the same way I do. I'm like, I, I know the song. I feel like I can hum it. I can sing it. But I'm not going to. Eternal slavery. Till Gabriel blows his horn. So I think it's been so long for me of not responding to the song and just like, completely trying to ignore the fact that it exists, that I don't really have like a, when I hear the song, I just like think like, I would like to be somewhere where the song is being played. In my years of knowing the song, I've known it more as a racist song for longer than I've known it as a song that you sing when your team wins or loses. I don't feel anything when I hear the song. Like I don't, I don't have an answer because to me, it's, it's a nothing. It's, it's, it's absolutely, I don't feel a symbol of pride. It doesn't bother me when the song is played. I don't, I think I'm more so emotionally tuned into how other people, when people have these very polar, when someone is willing to, to pay to have an airplane banner fly, stand with Sam around DKR, like, I'm like, oh, they feel a way. When people, I just feel like there's a way people have these really strong feelings. And I've been trying to unpack why I feel very attached to this story 
even though I don't feel any attachment or feeling one way or the other to the song. I don't feel a way when people sing it or don't sing it. When I've been at Texas X events and it's been played, I'll step out because I want to respect people that do feel that attachment. And so I don't want to be, they feel a thing and I want them to let them feel that thing. But I literally can excuse myself. That's a great time to go to the bathroom, grab a drink. I just feel absolutely nothing. Um, and I don't know how to deal with what that, what that means. I'm kind of like you. It doesn't evoke an emotion one way or the other anymore. So I don't, I guess I don't understand the people who are going so hard in the paint, especially trying to affect these young adults and their decision is very confusing to me. Like if you have a personal feeling about it, that's fine. Even amongst the people here, like if you, and I know we all are on the same page, but if you still felt nostalgic about it and wanted to stand and throw your horns up, that's cool, do you? But I, I don't understand this need to try to make everybody feel the same way about it. The feeling that I get is I will always feel it in my fingers and in my ears. I, I played that song more than I, I don't even know. Many times I've said my name feels like, um, so I will always have that association to the Longhorn Band, but I also feel conflict. I start, it feels this kind of sigh, you know, um, with it as well. The song feels arrogant now, singing. And I know that's it's a school song is supposed to say, hey, we Texas, you know, we're going to be here till Gabriel come, you know, till the second coming, you know, like, I, it's just, yeah, it just seems old fogey now, old fogey and play it out now. So it, there is a part of me that like, it, it, I, I do like stand up and get alert when I hear it, but it doesn't, I can't sing it with that same gospel barato like, like Juanessa, you know, anymore. So that's it. I lost the, the song's lost its passion for me. So another way we can think about this in conversation with listening ears is the question of standardization. So standardization, as I mentioned before, both in terms of form and of practice, musical form in terms of how the song is performed, right? The phrasing, the key signature, the time signature, but also the practice of the performance of this song. You're talking about sound of victory. No one embodies that more than a marching band. They are the literal sound of victory. Um, and the Eyes of Texas is part of that, right? When the victory hits its precipice, that's who you're, you're lo literally looking at and listening to. And for them to say, I'm out, fam, you know, I can't do, they don't have the necessary instrumentation to be able to do that. Um, and then for many alumni members to say, good for you guys, you know, to have a voice and to find that voice. Um, is, is inspiring in one end, but I also want to name and acknowledge the tension and complication that arises within that very large organization, um, especially on an individual basis with that as well. Can you speak more to that as someone that is an alum of this show band of the Southwest? Can you, can you speak to like what, what those tensions are and like, you know, band solidarity with the football team like for anyone that's I don't know gone to high school like that's not something that you see very often is like two very groups of different groups of folks across like a social sphere right um and so kind of what that moment means in terms of the culture of of UT's band as well as like what this moment could mean in terms of allyship and solidarity in a particular way for sure um I don't 
listening to different alumni band members who have been, you know, texting me, looking at different social media boards, I have no idea what's about to happen. I couldn't even tell you um, because there's so many different perspectives and um, hopes or fears, all of the above for this. Uh, I, I think when it comes back again to conditioning and meaning, that song, when you begin in the Longhorn Band, that song is in everything. It is everything, you know. Um, taking away just the school song doesn't really solve the problem because that little ditty is in all of the songs. I mean, you're gonna hear it in all of the traditional songs. Um, so so for, for, I'll say us as, as members and past members of the Longhorn Band, there's a lot of really special memories there um, and a lot of really, really, um, victorious moments, if you think, that you tie to football, you have love of football and love of university. But again, you know, like I said before, there is that complication once you start saying, oh, this is what that really means. What do I do with that now? And I honestly, again, I, it's not about the song because if you pull on the loose thread of that sweater of racism at the University of Texas at Austin and you decide we're gonna take everything away that has a foundation of racism, we have a few bricks left and some Cheetos. Okay, like, there's nothing standing up after that, you know? So you're going down, a like Justin said, a Pandora's box of a lot of things. For me as an American, honestly, not just a Longhorn, not just a band member, I am face to face with this question again, how do I maintain a love and a relationship with something so complex? If there's something that hurts and something that wounds, but also something that attracts in the same body, what do I do with that? You know, which I think is a good lesson for human beings in general. Um, but for a lot of black folks and brown folks right now, we're grappling with that. What do we do with this love of America, with this love of UT Austin that also has foundations that are so anti me, literally, that um, I've got to figure out what my relationship is with that now, what I'm willing to accept, what I'm willing to tolerate, what I'm not willing to tolerate. Um, and that comes on an individual basis to me. This what was the, the reaction from the band members when they decided to play the song from the speakers since they didn't have enough of you guys on Saturday to play the song? since they wanted so badly to go ahead and have oh, it. Oh, well, so um, remember there was a whole pandemic. So that was the thing. Um, so initially there was a statement about um, not having research to show if, if when instrumentation actually spread COVID-19. Um, so they didn't want to, for the safe health and safety of other people, they didn't want to put 400 people out there and blow air at <laughs> thousands of other individuals. Mm. Warm <laughs> spittle. So mm. Right, I mean, fair. So, but at that time, even that had its tension within the Alumni Association because a lot of folks said that's wise, that's good, that's safe. Other people said, mm -mm, that's a cop out. They're buying time. They're buying time for the eyes of Texas. They don't know what to do. And so people pushed back on that. That's rude. People are dying, right? And so they kind, of, they kind of pushed back and said, no, that's not it. Now we're making, it's a harder and harder argument to say that that's the case. Um, so the when they didn't show up, any, any time, like even at halftime when the band's not in the stands, they play it from the speaker. So that wasn't a big deal. Um, but now that the COVID reason is not exactly the reason, we're getting a little more complex. So you can, they don't want to blow COVID, but they would love to blow racism. Listen, listen, Warnessa. <laughs> Well, you know, well, you know, racism has never killed anyone like ever. So, and, like, and you know, that's why they had the flag guard there to offset. The that's image. really why. <laughs> <laughs> that's really why. 
there's also the practice of audience participation, right? How fans sing along to the eyes of Texas when they sing along to it. The fact that this is so deeply rooted in the history of UT that it's not simply a song that becomes visible at sporting events, but it's a song that becomes visible at weddings, at funerals, at other rituals and moments that are a part of the larger UT community and practice and have been for decades. I know we talk about two Americas right now, and I feel like this situation has, has highlighted two UTs at the very least, because I know listening to Clarence Hill here in Dallas on ESPN radio, he's mentioned that this song has, I don't want to say boycotted, but the black community as a whole, or you know, generally speaking, hasn't really taken part in singing this song since the 80s. You know, so this, and, and Nia can probably speak to this, you know, better than I can since she was there for us, but I just know this has been a situation for decades now, you know, and it, it's almost like, to me, it's been the worst kept secret because it's like, look, as a whole, the black community does not sing this song. I've been to many, many, many uh, weddings of Longhorns and classmates of color, you know, we don't see that at our wedding for the most part. Um, or at least I haven't taken part in that, whereas you talk to, you know, white alums, and like, oh yeah, we sang it at our wedding, and my grandfather had it played at his funeral, and I played it at my retirement ceremony, and I'm like, okay, we clearly live in two different worlds here. Once I joined the board of directors of, of my chapter, um, I was at one point membership chair for um, my Texas Exodus chapter, and we had and as membership chair, you're kind of like the host for, a, for the event. And they played the Eyes of Texas. And I think it was like the first time I had ever hosted the event. They played the Eyes of Texas. Um, I sat down. I, I handed someone else the mic and I said, I refuse to sing this song. And a couple of my other board of directors are like, Vanessa, you're being disrespectful. And I said, this song is racist. I just said it out loud. Number one, because at the end of an event, libations are flowing. <laughs> So the slip of the tongue just had no garter. Um, and so then I went to explain and they were like, oh my gosh. And so then I remember there was another event. I was still membership chair and I didn't sing the song and someone questioned it. And I remember one of my counterparts said, yeah, it, she has an issue with it. Um, Warnessa, I'm glad you stand up for your issue. I just remember her saying that very, and she, she's, she's supportive, she's an ally, but she really was like, I'm glad you stand up for your issue. That's your issue with the song. And so again, I'm like, at the time, I, I believe I was the only black person on the board of directors. And so it, it was just so interesting that I was so isolated from it. But then fast forward when all this George Floyd stuff um, came about and we were talking about putting out a statement about Black Lives Matter, I actually got an, a, an email from one of my other board of directors. And he said to me, once you told me about the song, I refuse to sing it. And I've taught my daughter that. This is an older wh a white man. Um, and I, I just thought it was interesting because in retrospect, I never remembered him not singing the song too. I just remember I was kind of in this bubble of me sitting down, me sometimes screaming out, this song is racist <laughs> in the middle of folks singing it. Um, Cause we all know who Warnessa is. And it just, I, it was at that point to where I was detached from the other 
um, Texas Exes and I felt very isolated and very alone, but to the point to where I didn't even notice I had an ally right there not singing it with me too. So that kind of shows like the emotion that's go that goes on with the song and the fight that you have even once you leave campus, when you decide to go to, uh, to these events, um, how polarizing it can be and how the tradition, it, 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 the tradition doesn't erase the hurt. Does it feel like, and, and just to kind of think about what Andrew's saying with this idea of two UTs, right? This idea of um, this woman saying to Warnessa, well, that's your, that's cute. That's your issue. Um, is there a way that this also kind of reveals both kind of these tensions located at like this idea of it not being a UT issue, we all need to grapple with as a university. It's like a disgruntled Texas X or these football players, or there's a way that there also seems like there's trying to be a segmentation of, well, just the black people have a problem with this song that is both inaccurate, um, but also speaks to this kind of uh, idea of, well, black UT does this, but we're, we're over here so they can get their issue there, but we're gonna do this over here. Does it feel like that's also kind of been a thing, both past and present for y'all. It's like a perfect microcosm of like the double consciousness of a black longhorn. Like you, you are on the same campus as these all these other people, and all these other mostly white people. You're on the same campus as them. You share the same experiences as them to a certain extent. You share the same traditions as them to a certain extent. You root for the same teams as them. It's it's a it's a stark reminder of who you are on the campus. It's a reminder of like you are something other, you are viewed as something other and your experience is something other because most of the Longhorns went through their whole college college time and either didn't know about the song or maybe knew about the song, but just didn't, it didn't affect their experience. It didn't affect the way that they experience a football game or it, it doesn't affect the way they experience these Confederate statues as they walk around campus. Like, And so you have these stark reminders that are all over and it, this is not specific or special to the University of Texas. This is at every, you know, PWI, like there's Both always that reminder of yeah. like, you are the minority here. And this experience wasn't exactly created for someone like you. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it, but it just means that you're going to have these reminders of, I am other here and I'm viewed as other here, at least by certain people. And so, you know, the song is just like a perfect example of like, when that happens, you immediately go back into your body and like, I am a black person that goes to a school where 3% of us are black, maybe 4% of us are black in a good year. And that's it. And that and, and we are we are in our own bubble, so to speak. And the song is like brings you back to that place. So when we think about standardization, part of that question is what is so precious, right? What is lost, perhaps, if we change the musical tradition and introduce a new song instead of the eyes of Texas to fill this role, this musical ritual practice for UT? What's at stake by changing it, right? Why are people so attached? to this song that they would pay for a plane to fly overhead saying, I stand with Sam, right? Which is both about emphasizing the desire to keep the tradition of this song as part of this sporting experience, but it's also about validating or making visible Sam's response, his response as a listener, as a player to the performance of this song within the context of this sporting space. So we see shifts in the conversation around standardization, both from musical form to practice, to its role in a place and space like a football game, but also in terms of how athletes have been addressed or framed by the media, by fans, by audiences in the wake of 
this past week's game where they were asked to stay out on the field, right? And then it becomes more nuanced about, well, then how are they performing their pride? How are they performing their allegiance to this school, to this institution, to this team from the way that they are physically responding to this song? Even in the response from the university, when they were saying, well, I've encouraged the staff and the team to participate in thanking our fans and respecting our fans. Well, who are the fans? That says to them that they don't think that the fans who need to be respected include people who look like us, mm -hmm. who look like the players. Because who's to say that some of the fans or the alumni or the boosters don't feel that the song needs to be gotten rid of. They're making an assumption that some of the people in the stands who include us, people who look like us, don't feel that this needs to be discussed further. So even in their statement, they're not considering that some of those 4% who were once walking around the campus are now in the stands saying, I remember when I was a student and didn't want to stand up and sing the song or hear, like TJ said, hear the song after the elation of watching my team. We're not doing it right now, but after the elation of watching my team win, I don't want to be brought down by hearing that song. So it's, again, their mindset of not including us in that fandom even because some of the fans are people who live in the community. It's not just alumni and students. Austin itself is a city of people who rally around that team. And it's not just white people who roll up to go to those games. So they're being very myopic in how they view their fanship. If you look at the state itself, not just Austin, the state who shows up to go to the state fair when they go to Dallas to play OU. So they're, they're not even considering who their fanship, who their fandom, their fan base are when, when they say, when they release statements like that. Does it feel like though, I mean, to me, it feels like part of the core problem is what, you know, perhaps has already been said in terms of it's still about making it your issue. If you don't want to do it, that's cool. It's not addressing this institutional. So it's easy for him to pull back and say, cause when he's like, oh, you guys have a little issue with the song. Y'all don't, look at me, I'm being so like, look, I'm an incredible leader. You can not do it. You're welcome. It's like, no, we actually have a voice here. And some of it is like, to speak to what Nia is saying, like maybe inspired by Mizzou, for example, and thinking about what their football team was able to do in terms of ousting their president. And so there's also a fear of the university of what happens with these athletes as they get more empowered, right? This idea of once Mizzou happens, there has to be a lot of administrations that say, ooh, could that happen here? Could the football players withhold their labor? Could they do something or say something that, that causes some kind of significant change. So I think that's a really interesting and important fact. Is there anyone else that kind of feels any kind of way about like what the players issuing their list of demands kind of made you feel in terms of your own pride or your own kind of relationship to Texas football? A good thing coming out of this could be that now we're seeing our power 
coming together as athlete, black athletes and black non-athletes and finally seeing how we can kind of make things happen once we come together and put our own issues aside and have that unity. If that unity is finally happening, I can at least praise that. Let me mention Mizzou. That, that was a big part of the Mizzou story too. Of these, the black athletes and the black non-athletes kind of came together for that thing to happen. It was really powerful for sure. Right. I mean, and I would just say welcome to the party because I know, you know, I think Warnessa was was alluding to it. You know, when we were at UT, there there was, you know, generally speaking, a divide between the black non-athlete and the black athlete. And I understand, you know, athletes are pretty much there for a job, you know, between film study and practice and, you know, weights and everything. I, I understand they have a very strict regimen that they have to keep to. But, you know, we, I think we've always wanted, because like I said earlier, you know, Collectively, most of us haven't been singing the song for 15 years. But when we see, you know, a football team or whoever religiously singing the song at every turn, uniform, you know, it's like, okay, where's where's the where's the breakdown here? You know, so I think now seeing that a lot of black students or, or woke, if you will, now uh, athletes included, you know, that that is encouraging because it's almost like we've been whispering for years, hey, stop singing this damn song. You know, uh, so now, you know, now it's good to know that it's it's not a whisper anymore. It's it's a roar. I think there's a difference in culture. I'm going to say just as someone who works in higher ed, um, there's a difference in culture in terms of how athletes um, are positioning themselves, Black athletes, um, to the university in general from when we were in school. And so I think that's something that's nationwide where that does result in a Mizzou, or if you look at what's happening at USC, um, some of the women on the track and field team are organizing the entire university's athletes into a black student athlete kind of organization where it's about them and they're working with the BSA on campus and they're working with all these different orgs. And so I think there is a, to Warnessa's point, a really beautiful moment that's happening across campuses um, that we're seeing in various spaces. And also, I want to also point out how this is also gendered in a particular way, because if we look at what the volleyball team has been doing at UT, they huddle up during Eyes of Texas. They do not stand and sing. They come together as a collective, the entire team, and they don't acknowledge the Eyes of Texas. And so I think there's a way that um, this is happening across sports. Obviously, football is getting a lot of attention because of how it's played out. Um, but I also want to acknowledge that this is something that's happening across the entire campus. And again, just to go with the microcosm here, the issue is not resolved simply if athletes, namely Black athletes, decide to be okay with the song. Again, I think that, again, represents a compartmentalization of issue um, because now that, again, there is this roar, like was stated very eloquently, um, of athletes in themselves, but it's bleeding into other individuals, namely the Longhorn Band. There's also the way in which we could argue sports is never devoid of politics. I think the Sound of Victory is a space where we make that argument over and over again that we cannot detach these two things. We see how this happens both with the historical linkages to Robert E. Lee and the militaristic undertones that that then makes visible for us in the context of United States' broader history but also the way that the song, The Eyes of Texas, introduced President Lyndon B. Johnson at the Democratic National Convention in 1960, right? So this song becomes representative, not just of the school, but of the space and place of Texas within the broader context of the United States. So for this, I would ask that we think about music, 
and this song in particular as identity, right? As identity of nation, of state, of institution specifically, but also music as communication, as communicating a particular legacy, a particular ideology that circulates systems of shared beliefs and values that clearly are no longer aligned with the context of 2020 and the way that students, players, alumni feel about this song in the current moment but also that music is always an entry point for the examination of larger cultural histories. Here, we're thinking about the history of minstrelsy, the history of racial segregation, of racism, of racial hierarchies more broadly in Texas specifically, but also in the United States. And this is why I raised the issue of mythology alongside nostalgia because mythology insinuates, right, that it has always been about a myth, about this imagined community, if you will, this imagined myopic sort of homogeneous community that is represented by one song that has never in fact been representative of the identities that comprise UT. Um, so here we could turn to George Lipsitz, an incredible cultural historian who has argued that quote, forms of popular culture emerging over the past two centuries have helped make a crisis of historical memory the constitutive problem of our time, end quote. So to break that down, Lipsitz is arguing that forms of popular culture like a fight song, for example, have become the crisis of historical memory because they force us con to contend with differing understandings of tradition, differing understandings of identity, differing understandings of institutional pride through the performance um, and reception of a musical song, musical cultural artifact like the eyes of Texas. Thank you so much to all of our guests today. We'll be keeping our eyes upon this as it continues to develop. For more from The Sound of Victory, check us out at thesoundofvictory.org or on Instagram at thesoundofvictory.